1: Last week, as you recall,
2: a terrifying cosmic storm threatened our space family. John. A storm whose strange and incredible power was soon to force open a mysterious door to another world. John. Take a look at this cosmic radiation gauge. That's wild.
1: Well, does that mean we're going to have a cosmic storm? And fast. You better get the kids together. Here comes Judy now.
2: Time. Boy, it's a good thing we had Smith install those arresters last week. I'll go below and check in the case. Right.
1: Thank you. Arrestors? Daddy, aren't those long metal poles with uh round gizmos on top? That's right. But I just saw them this morning. They were hidden under some brush. Smith! Smith! I thought I told you to install those arresters ten days ago. Now look what you've done. I've lost the count. Lost the count? What Dr. Smith, are you ill? preventive medicine, Adam. I must check every day. You know, it's all very well for these younger men to be forced into manual labor, but for a man of my year... Never mind that. Didn't you put any of them up? Any of what? Oh. Will's below, but Penny must be outside. Oh, John! All right, you two take care of the ship. We'll fight Penny. That beats you, Smith. Get a move on! Come on, Debbie. We'd better get back. There's nobody under there, silly. It's just a mirror. (laughs) Look. See now, watch. They'll do everything that we do. Bluff, bluff, bluff. Penny, where are you? Oh, over here, Dr. Smith! It's high time, you answered. Come along, dear. There's a cosmic storm brewing. We haven't a moment to lose. Cosmic storm? Where did this come from? I don't know. Come on, Debbie, hurry alien mirror abandoned by some other space traveler perhaps well it's not worth anything is it oh no no absolute trash that's all completely worthless i was gonna ask dad about it but oh no no you mustn't ask him anything you mustn't bother anybody it's only solid platinum that's all well then hurry up dr smith let's go (laughs) Oh!
0: Oh. Come on, under here. Under here. Welcome back, folks, for episode 21 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 21st broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Magic Mirror. And I think this episode is aptly titled because we do get a mirror, but more importantly, we get another story focusing on Penny. And that has more than a little magic to offer. A few production notes before we begin with the story. This was 49-year-old Jackson Gillis' second script for Lost in Space. The first was the Penny Showcase, My Friend Mr. Nobody, which we both enjoyed. This story borrows themes and ideas from several classic works, such as Alice Through the Looking Glass and Peter Pan. Mark Cushman even sees some cinematic nods towards The Wizard of Oz in some of the scenes, which I'll try to mention as we get to them. Gillis had a very prolific writing career from the 50s through the 80s, doing scripts for TV shows like Perry Mason and Columbo. He eventually wrote seven episodes of Lost in Space and one of Land of the Giants. 54-year-old Nathan Jurin is back for his second effort directing Lost in Space. We saw his work last time in the excellent Return from Outer Space. Eventually, he would go on to direct 13 episodes of the series. We mentioned last time that this one was being shot at the same time as War of the Robots. Juran would be working with veteran cinematographer Charles G. Clark, while the series' regular director of photography, Gene Polito, was busy filming Robots. The shooting schedule required the two production crews to trade off using the show's three assigned sound stages, as well as the cast members, in a shell game fashion. If this gamble to buy Lost in Space breathing room in its network delivery schedule was going to work, both teams had to adhere as closely as possible to the plan. Otherwise, the house of cards would come tumbling down.
2: I'm sure that was pretty stressful, but it it was also probably very exciting for them. I mean, if it works, they would have staved off that Grim Reaper showtime deadline by a full week, which was always breathing down their necks and, uh, of course, making the threat of them missing their actual show date. So this was a very clever solution and well worth a gamble. I've never heard of Star Trek doing anything like this, and they actually missed some of their show dates. So eat that, Gene Roddenberry, (laughs) outsmarted by the lowbrow Irwin Allen. (laughs) Apparently that two-foot tower of Brillo hair also contains some serious brains within.
0: Yeah, well, it did work in this case. It sure did. That's great. Good point about uh, Star Trek, too. Well, this episode was filmed from the 24th of January through the 1st of February, 1966. That's six and a quarter days. It aired on February 16th, 1966, and it got a summer repeat on June 22nd, 1966. As far as the cast goes, missing entirely from this episode is our friend the robot who was busy fighting the robotoid this week. And Bill Mooney was also MIA except for a brief little bit in the cliffhanger at the end. Guest starring in the role of the alien boy in Mirrorland is Michael J. Pollard. He was 26, but typically cast in much younger roles, and his big break came in 1959 when Bob Denver, who starred as the beatnik Maynard Krebs on The Dobie Gillis Show, was drafted. Kurt, you remember Bob Denver. He later played Gilligan on that hit show Lost in the South Pacific, right? Uh, You betcha, Skipper. Well, Pollard was brought in to replace Bob Denver as Maynard's weird cousin Jerome. That's some typecasting for you. But his stint on Dobie was short and sweet, lasting all of two episodes before Denver flunked out of the army as 4F. Maybe he failed the drug test, hmm. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I never heard that. Gilligan flunked out of the army, that's perfect. But I'll give this for Dobie, at least they didn't try to pull the old, you know, bewitch
0: trick where you just swap out characters and don't even you know, address it at all. Yeah, so aggravating. It is. Well, Pollard's experience and his oddball personality opened up numerous other opportunities for the young actor, including a role as a goofy teenager on the Star Trek episode Miri. Later, he would receive a Golden Globe and Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor in the 1967 classic movie Bonnie and Clyde that starred Warren Beatty. Cushman quotes Lost in Space casting director Joe Degusta saying that because Pollard was so quirky and he played every role that way, Quote, you either loved him or hated him, unquote. Mm, Don't put me in the loved him category, Kurt, but uh, I might have more to say on that later. Yeah, no,
2: actually, I'm with you. He had that that big round nose like W.C. Fields. It looked
0: like a big onion. And for some (laughs) reason, I just always wanted to punch that onion. Yeah, he he was a little different. But uh, anyway, stunt actor Mike Donovan is back inside the bear suit playing another hairy beast. This time with one large eye for a head. Hmm, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, with that, let's get on to the story. The teaser starts as always with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. John is outside the Jupiter II as a severe storm is brewing. There's thunder, lightning, and really fierce winds blowing over pieces of the Robinson's precious hydroponic garden. Maureen hustles the professor back inside the ship, and Don tells him to take a look at the cosmic radiation gauge, which is pegged off the charts. And it's confirming the worst. Our castaways are in for a real doozy of a cosmic storm, Kurt.
2: Oh yeah, but you know, cosmic radiation is potent stuff. In fact, some scientists credit it for the mass extinction of the dinosaurs. And even today, it's a competing scientific explanation for global warming. Although it's not as popular as the CO2 theory, because let's face it, they can't figure out a way to tax radiation from space. (laughs) (laughs) But the takeaway here is that cosmic
0: radiation is pretty serious business. Mm. Well, it certainly seems to be in this case. We can hear the beeping of the ship's instruments' warning of danger. Judy darts inside for the safety of the Jupiter and the hatch closes behind her before all heck breaks loose. By the way, all that wind was causing both Maureen and Judy to suffer something of a bad hair day, I thought. Mm Mm-hmm. Don mentions that it's a good thing they had Smith install those storm arresters last week. Uh Uh-oh. John, (laughs) you left that important task to Smith? This has disaster written all over it. Don goes below deck to make sure the youngsters are all right. Then, hearing Don's comment, Judy tells the professor she noticed those arresters just this morning stacked in a pile and hidden under some brush. Mm. A look of instant realization and anger comes over John's face, and a look of distress over Maureen's.
2: I love that expression that John gives. It's anger, yes, but it's not the I'm going to beat the crap out of him anger. It's, <laughs> it's more of a frustration, the kind you get when your teenager borrows the car and leaves the windows open like you told him not to a million times and it rained on the leather upholstery again. <laughs> you know, you could just see John grinding his teeth, you know, and
0: restraining himself. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Well, instead, John confronts a seated Dr. Smith who seems blissfully unaware of the pandemonium that's breaking out around them. Stethoscope plugged into his ears, Smith is preoccupied, listening intently to his heartbeat. John shouts at him and not so delicately nudges his arm to finally get his attention. With a look of annoyance, Smith unplugs himself as John shouts to the disinterested doctor, I thought I told you to install those arrestors ten days ago. Now look what you've done. I've lost the count. (laughs) Enraged, John asks if he installed any of the storm arresters. Acting like he has no idea what the professor is talking about, he replies, what arresters? Well, that entire scene was
2: priceless. It accurately predicts the cluelessness of teenagers plugged into their Walkmans, Mm. iPads, iPhones, (laughs) decades before they were invented.
0: (laughs) Yep, I've seen that one before. Well, John's fit to be tied, and the storm is getting worse. Just then, Don comes back up to report that Will's below, but Penny isn't. She must still be outside, and that's not good. Oh, don't worry. She's still got the
2: chimp with her. So when the chimp dies, it'll be obvious that there's a problem with this radiation, and she'll know (laughs) to come back to the ship.
0: (laughs) Uh, a very frustrated John tells the others to finish securing the Jupiter Two. He tells Marine not to worry; they'll find her. Then he dragoons Smith to go along on the search for Penny before the worst of that storm hits. As the gale-force wind intensifies, John and Smith race outside of the ship, dodging tumbleweeds as they depart the campsite to find Penny. At least they're not electrified tumbleweeds, remember those? (laughs) Oh yes, yes. A worried Maureen follows them outside the ship. Turning towards the camera, she calls for Penny. In a move that reminds us of Auntie M shouting for Dorothy before the twister can hit. Well then we cut to a strange image. The camera is slowly panning across what is obviously a very large, full-length alien mirror laying on its side with one end propped up on a rock and the other resting in the sand. The abandoned object has a very ornate metallic frame. The glass appears to have a few hairline cracks, but otherwise, it seems to be in fine condition. And it's embellished with all sorts of interesting details, but what jumps out are the large Egyptian-styled bullheads decorating the frame. Yeah, it was a cool-looking mirror,
2: although you could see that the cracks were actually, like, raised black wax or some sort of mm. dark string that was stuck to it. You know, I guess they felt they had to show damage or else it wouldn't yeah. make sense that it had been left behind. They should have known, though, that the nitpickers at Alpha Control,
0: you're going to be damned if you do or damned if you don't, you know what way. Yes, we get a lot of time to freeze frame and examine each <laughs> each centimeter closely, don't we, Kurt?
2: Yeah, but if they didn't have the cracks, they would be complaining that, "Hey, why did they leave the beer behind? There were no cracks." Yeah, you know, so. yeah. And if they did have real cracks, then it would have been a union issue. Oh, boy! <laughs>
0: Safety of the actors, don't you know?
2: Tell Mister Owen, there's no way I'm going to push that mirror. It'll be seven years of bad luck. <laughs>
0: The camera lingers on one end of the mirror where Penny and Little Debbie are examining the surprising object and also making silly faces. She mentions they should probably get back to the ship, but the Bloop is fascinated with her reflection in the mirror. That's when we hear the voice of Dr. Smith calling out for Penny. He arrives on the scene out of breath, complaining that it's high time, she answered. They need to get back because there's a cosmic storm brewing. Cosmic storm? She picks up little Debbie and says they better get along. But when Dr. Smith catches sight of that massive alien mirror, he loses all all sense of urgency fascinated by the object he asks penny where it came from well she doesn't have a clue then running his greedy fingers over the ornate metalwork of the frame he now has a familiar look of avarice on his face an alien mirror abandoned by some other space travelers perhaps mm. well it's not worth anything is it oh oh no oh no, no. absolute trash that's all completely worthless Well, I was going to ask Dad about it.
2: Oh, no, no, no. You mustn't tell him anything. You mustn't bother anybody. It's only solid... Platinum,
0: that's all. Mm. <laughs> well, I really like how Gillis is playing with Dr. Smith's lust for priceless material possessions. In his script for Mr. Nobody, we remember Smith became obsessed with diamonds, and now he has platinum fever. It makes me wonder if the Smith family was in the jewelry business, because he certainly has an expert's eye for precious metals and stones. Well, Penny warns the now-distracted Smith to hurry up, but just then, a severe bolt of lightning strikes too close for comfort. Smith panics at nearly being electrocuted. When she asks if he's alright, the doctor's not sure, and then he makes a show of checking his pulse. Well, now it's too late to run for the ship as more blinding bolts of cosmic lightning strike nearby. So they decide to take cover underneath the mirror. There's just barely enough room for them to shelter from the storm, at least for the moment. And it's a good thing they did, because a second later, a lightning bolt strikes the mirror directly. (laughs) causes a shower of sparks to erupt. Then, the bullhead's eyes flash and smoke pours out from its nostrils. By the way, Erwin Allen originally suggested another way to show this mirror was more than it appeared. He had suggested that we see a hairy clawed hand reach out from the glass and catch a bolt of lightning, pulling it into the mirror in a shower of sparks. Either due to expense or time, this was changed to having the lightning strike the mirror and the demonic looking bull's head snort smoke and flash its eyes. But it does show that Erwin hadn't totally given up on giving us some frights in Lost in Space. Yeah, I kind of like
2: that hairy claw idea, but I have to admit it doesn't really make a lot. Sense. I mean, not that that ever stopped Irwin before, but this may be a rare instance where the cheapness factor actually improved the script somewhat. Yeah. A rare instance, I might add.
0: <laughs> well, the sound of the wind is terrifyingly loud now, but somehow Penny can hear the calls from her father. Smith says they can't risk leaving the cover of the mirror or they'll be killed. John finally hears Penny and he races over to help them. They're relieved to see the professor, and fortunately, he's brought a change of the weather with him. The storm begins to break, and the three castaways climb out from under their shelter. John then notices the alien mirror and asks where it came from. Smith tries hard to convince John that it's, oh, it's unimportant, just a piece of trash left behind by some alien visitor. Well, John says they're lucky it wasn't hit by cosmic lightning, but of course we know it was. You see, they have no way of knowing what sort of strange forces could be released if alien metals are struck with cosmic energy. Uh Uh-oh.
2: That sounded more like a magician talking than a scientist. I mean, strange forces and alien metals. How would he know that anyway? No known Earth scientist had ever encountered aliens or their metals until the Robinsons first encountered them on the derelict. So what does he use to base all that information on? You know,
0: but it it sounds good, so we'll go with it. Yeah, I think it's just a little bit of a MacGuffin to get us worried about that mirror, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know. Go with the flow. I'm going. As the teaser draws to a close, Smith's not happy where this is going. He tries to get the professor to believe that the mirror is just worthless tin and lead. Both very poor conductors, don't you know? He wants everyone to get away from that mirror before someone tries to jump his claim. And he suggests a speedy retreat back to the safety of the Jupiter 2 before the storm surges again. Smith's urging finally gets everyone moving and after the four of them depart the area, the wind starts to pick up yet again and the camera cuts back to a close-up of the ornate bull's head. Its eyes begin to flash and smoke pours out of its metallic nostrils yet again. And before we go to the opening titles, the camera pans down the alien mirror. Then we pause in the center of its mirrored glass. At first, all we see is the ordinary reflection of the cloudy skies. But after a second, the glass darkens. Then the reflection dissolves away and is replaced by the image of a very... Very large alien eyeball staring out from the glass. But we'll have to wait until we get back to find out what all this means. Oh yeah, and if it's not obvious yet, it will be soon. Cause that eyeball,
2: it's not in a head. It's actually attached to a head on a giant stalk. Very spooky kids. <laughs>
0: turn from the opening credits, Dr. Smith is alone in the upper deck of the Jupiter too. He has a cool but suspicious expression on his face, as he ensures no one is looking around to observe his actions. Talking to himself, he begins rifling through the equipment locker, helping himself to several implements, which he places in a satchel that he's carrying. It's a cleverly filmed little scene, because we're viewing him from inside the locker, facing the camera, head leaned in between a couple of shelves. He rattles off the items on his wish list of tools, taking a hammer, a jeweler's drill, and then a diamond saw, which will come in handy to cut up platinum into very small pieces that he can hide from the others. Ah, now we know what he's up to. (laughs) Just then, Major West walks up unannounced behind the good doctor, calling out his name. This unexpected visitor startles the sneaky smith. He jumps from the surprise and in a chuckle-inducing moment bangs the top of his head on the shelf right above him. I saw that one coming a mile away,
2: <laughs> Oh, yeah. It, it may have been telegraphed, but it was still hysterical. Seeing yeah. it coming only added to the anticipation. I'm almost kind of surprised they didn't have the sound of a coconut hitting, you know, in that, <laughs> that
0: would have been great. <laughs> Well, Don says they missed him at breakfast this morning. They thought maybe he wasn't awake, and that had to raise everyone's eyebrows. Since when does Dr. Smith miss a meal? For a second, he appears more than a little guilty, but quick as a cat, recovers his composure. He dons an innocent, pitiable face. Awake? Oh, Major, if only I could sleep all night tossing and turning. You know how
2: delicate my back is. Oh, the pain. The pain.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, speaking of which, this will be the last episode that Jonathan Harris will wear the infamous light-colored uniform, and there's a lot of Lost in Space mythology surrounding this briefly worn costume that Cushman retells. According to the costume designer Paul Zestabnevich, he recalls that the pale and yellow orange top was an experiment he tried when he did a mid-season wardrobe update for the cast, an experiment that didn't work out with Smith, so he went back to dark shades for Harris. However, Harris remembered it entirely differently. While admitting that the lighter colors weren't as flattering for his middle-aged physique, Harris also strongly believed that as the heavy, it made more sense to keep him in a darker color scheme so strongly that he had to stomp his foot down to quickly get it changed back, adding that whatever helped me helped the show. Wow.
2: For a guy who wants to hide his middle-aged physique, Harris sure knows how to throw his weight around,
0: huh? (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, Kevin Burns revealed that the truth was more complicated. Jonathan hated the new outfit, which originally had light-colored pants, as well as the top from day one. Those light pants accentuated his wide hips, so he got that changed to dark pants before he would even try it on. But he still wasn't happy with the light-colored top. Because in addition to wearing a brace under his shirts for a bad back, he also always had shoulder pads sewn into his costumes, just like TV's Superman, George Reeves, did. The lighter-colored shirt made it obvious he was faking broad shoulders, so he demanded they go back to the dark top.
2: Oh, so the shoulder pads are more about looks than actual comfort or anything. Uh,
0: that's Smith. He's a wily one. Indeed. Indeed. Don strangely seems to be buying the act for the moment. He even has a tone of concern as he glances over Smith's shoulder at the storage locker shelves. Curious and perhaps even hiding his suspicions, he forcefully wedges his head next to Smith's who then puts on a show of searching for something. The camera is now back inside the cramped area between the shelves, close up on both men's faces. Major West is surveying the tools and asks the doctor what he's looking for. Smith does some quick thinking on his feet, coming up with yet another lie. Oh, well, he was searching for his heating pad that he loaned to Mrs. Robinson. Hearing that, Don's tone of concern quickly changes to smiling sarcasm. Oh, that's all right. He's got something for Smith that will fix up his back in a jiffy as he gives him a few slaps on that delicate back for emphasis. It's an old-fashioned restorative instrument. Now Smith's face changes to a look of dread, and he turns around to see what Don is talking about. The Major walks up, carrying something behind his back, announcing in a drill sergeant's voice that he's got exactly what Smith needs, a shovel.
2: Oh, boy. So all that uh, concern that Don was feigning was just a setup. He had a chore for Smith in store, and he couldn't wait to deliver the bad news.
0: Exactly. Exactly and it is bad news for Smith because he looks totally crestfallen. He has far too many other important plans for his day to be bothered with any ditch digging not to mention he isn't feeling well but Don lays it on thicker Smith's failure to install the storm arresters nearly cost them all their lives so he orders Smith to get them all installed before nightfall. Otherwise he's going to use that shovel to dig a hole and put Smith in it.
2: Yeah it's good that he mentioned about the arresters because up until that point you're sitting there thinking Don is such an (laughs)
0: a-hole but then you're reminded
2: okay well i guess smith kind of asked for it
0: yeah he did and mark goddard is really acting steamed here complete with the gritting teeth but the lighthearted music along with smith's pitiful expression and voice is telling us that this is being played more for comedy than for drama storm arresters in my condition in your condition (laughs) realizing that the major means business smith relents takes the shovel with him and heads out to start his day's work but pauses at the hatch
2: Really, Major, there is no necessity to being ghoulish about it.
0: Don simply tells him to start digging, I guess before he does. <laughs> Next, we're outside the ship. There's quite a mess to be cleaned up. Then we're in for more comedy as Dr. Smith walks into frame, shovel in one hand, secret tool satchel slung over one padded shoulder, and several of those long, pole like arresters slung over his other shoulder. He's marching out of camp to get started with his unhappy chore when Marine stops him to ask if he's seen Penny around. This next bit of well-timed comedy was straight out of the Three Stooges because Smith has these 10- or 12-foot storm arrestor poles slung on his shoulder, and rather than turning his head to address Marine, he turns his whole body, cluelessly swinging those poles around with him as he does. And this causes Marine to have to duck and dodge the poles several times, barely avoiding being smacked in the head. It was really impressive to see, see how fast Marine moved out of the way of those things.
2: Oh, yeah. What's the big idea? No, no, no.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, Smith is irritated at being pestered by questions about the children. He's far too busy this morning. But then her question about Penny hits him. Maureen says she's run off somewhere, but don't worry, she'll find her. Uh, Run off somewhere? Already? Hmm. Smith's irritation changes to agitation, and he quickly excuses himself. He turns around and starts heading once more out of camp, but then runs straight into John and Don. Now it's their turn to duck and dodge Smith's swinging arrestor poles, apologizing with several quick... I beg your pardon, sir. <laughs> so Sorry. Yeah, he finally gets out of their way and out of camp. It's amazing no one wound up needing stitches because they all three somehow managed to avoid being clobbered by those poles. It was obviously contrived, but well played, and did cause me to giggle, Kurt.
2: Yeah, well, again, you know, we could have used that slapstick and the
0: coconut sitting together. You know, hoo hoo hoo. Next, we see Dr. Smith marching through the rocky desert terrain, burdened with all those poles and distractedly muttering to himself about being reduced to a beast of burden. He winds up walking straight into some low-hanging branches that causes him to drop all those poles. Totally worn out and exasperated, he throws down his shovel and leans against a rock for support to catch his breath. That's when he catches sight of Judy and Penny, some distance away, struggling to prop up that alien mirror.
2: Get away from that mirror. It's my mirror and my platinum. Mm.
0: The girls do manage to get that large mirror stabilized, and they're both excited about it.
1: There. That's got it. I told you. Oh, it's wonderful. A full-length mirror. Just what we needed.
0: Standing upright, that thing is much larger than it appeared earlier when it was propped on its side.
2: Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder what size the aliens were that used it. You know, these things may have been
0: giants. I thought of the same thing. That's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah.
1: Which reminds me, you promised you'd help me fix my hair. Not again. Thought I'd try it a little bit higher on top with perhaps a softer curl. You and your hair,
2: juice.
1: I'm gonna cut all my hair off, just like Will. Go ahead, be ugly. Who cares?
0: Uh-oh. Yeah.
1: I'm sorry. It's just that I wish you'd fix yourself up once in a while. I don't like to see you going around acting like a boy. You know what I mean. What's wrong with boys? Nothing. But you could be so beautiful. Look.
0: Pulling her hair back in front of the mirror, Judy says,
1: You are so beautiful. It's time you started realizing it. Why? Why is all that goop so important anyway? Well, you are growing up. So what? Why can't I be the way I am? Maybe I like the way I am. Maybe I'll stay this way forever. Penny?
2: I don't want to grow up, why should I? Especially when you've already nabbed the only available bachelor.
0: Yes. Well, I do think this was kind of a powerful and touching scene, and it did harken back to what we discussed in Mr. Nobody, Kurt. You're right. Basically, everybody else at least has a friend. All Penny has is little Debbie. What's making it worse is that Judy just pointed out she's growing up. You know, the reality is they may be stuck on that planet forever, and there's no dawn on that planet for Penny. And if that's the case, she's facing a sad future as what we used to call an old maid, or what's often referred to today as a cat lady. Lady, or maybe in this case, a galactic chimp lady. Oh, boy. Yeah. All kidding aside, and hopefully not coming across as too old-fashioned, I don't think that's the future most little girls aspire to. <laughs>
2: N- now, wait a minute. W- what about Dr. Smith? He's still available. Why not have him? Oh. Oh, dear. Oh, dear <laughs> me. <laughs>
0: Well, Judy chases after Penny, but after they leave the area, the music becomes threatening and chilling. The camera moves back to focus on that upright mirror. In the glass, the image of a strange-looking boy dissolves into view. He begins to smile and clap his hands, as if he's been listening to the girl's conversation. If so, he's apparently happy with this turn of events. Yeah, and he has a giant onion for his nose. (laughs) (laughs) W.C. Fields. Smith, still crouching behind that large rock, is relieved to see those meddling, interfering females leave his mirror. With the coast clear, he picks up his shovel and approaches the mirror. He's forgotten all about those arresters now. Greed has taken him over completely, because when he stands before the upright alien treasure, he has a look of unbridled satisfaction on his face. He drops his tool satchel on the ground, and then runs both his hands lovingly over that precious alien metalwork and begins to scheme his next move. Here you are, my beautiful treasure. Uh, Giving in to his lust for riches, he he places his face next to one of those bullheads, decorating the mirror frame. As he strokes it like a baby's cheek, he slowly utters to himself, Platinum. Oh
2: yes, platinum. (laughs) At, let's say, $500 an ounce. Oh, lovely. Mm. Lovely. You know... We always think of platinum as a super valuable metal, but throughout history it was actually considered worthless. In fact, when Cortez conquered South America, they reburied all the platinum that the Incans had mined because it was seen as a waste metal. Mm. Then 400 years later, when they finally figured out a way to heat it so that it could be used to, you know, to bend and work with it, modern miners had to go and remine all those filled-in mines for those same precious buckets of waste metals. So I guess one man's junk really is another man's treasure.
0: I guess so. I'd never heard that story before. That's cool. Well, as Smith continues to study his precious treasure, dwelling on the millions or even billions he stumbled upon, he fails to notice that little Debbie, the precocious bloop, has wandered back into the area. She picks up his tool satchel and drags it off with her. Ready to get down to work, Smith looks down to discover his tools have grown hairy chip legs. Enraged, he yells after her to stop and come back, but she keeps on trucking. Chasing after her, he yells... Come back here, you simian simpleton. (laughs) It's funny, Smith doesn't have the robot to berate in this episode, so the Bloop has taken over as his punching bag for now, I guess. Yeah, and he poured in a storm. Mm Mm-hmm. When he rounds another rock formation, Debbie's nowhere in sight.
2: Where are you, you dreadful creature? (laughs)
0: Frustrated and out of breath again, Smith picks up a large rock and an evil look comes across his face. He seems so angry that for a minute I was afraid he was thinking of using that rock on the bloop. But no, he says he'll have to adapt himself to the situation and get the job done on his mirror without tools. Meanwhile, even dragging that tool satchel, Debbie is not only faster than Smith, she's also slippery because she's back at the magic mirror. But look out, Debbie, that mirror has started to come alive again. The bull's eyes at the top of the frame are flashing and smoke is starting to pour yet again out of its nostrils.
2: That's always a cool effect of the you know the eyes burning, presumably red, who knows what color, and the smoke coming out of the nostrils. But I was reminded of that, some sort of ancient Greek torture where some terrible ruler created this. It wasn't a platinum bowl, but it was like a golden bowl or made out of a metal, where you would take the intended victim and stash him inside the bowl. And Ugh. then you'd heat up the bull and fray the person alive. Did you never hear of that torture? It's like no. one of history's worst possible tortures. <laughs> so every time I see this bull and the steam coming out of its nose, I'm reminded of that, you know.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Wow. That is grisly, isn't it?
2: Yeah. They didn't have unions back then.
0: So. No. <laughs> With the act nearing a close, the magical-sounding music that we first heard in Mr. Nobody is also telling us that something cosmic is about to happen to little Debbie. Then we see the image of that strange alien boy again. Well, he's staring out at Debbie from inside the mirror, holding something in his hand. Without saying a word, he gets her attention, motioning for her to come nearer. Then we see what he's holding, a nice ripe banana, which he begins to peel for her. Now, what monkey can resist a freshly peeled banana curd? Yeah, we'll add three scoops of ice cream to it, and even I'll split for that banana. <laughs> <laughs> at that moment, Dr. Smith finally returns to the mirror. Seeing Debbie there, he angrily snaps at her, there you are, and walks towards the mirror. Before Smith can get his hands on her and recover his tool bag, Debbie answers with a few bloops and then walks straight into the mirror. And for emphasis, we're shown a clever side view shot of Debbie walking into the front of the mirror, satchel and all, but nothing emerging on the back side. She didn't walk through the mirror so much as into it, which of course is impossible.
2: Oh, come now. Nothing is impossible on lost in space.
0: Uh, I guess not. Dr. Smith does a double take. One minute his fingers were mere inches away from grasping the naughty monkey, and then she disappeared into the mirror. Terrified at what he's just seen, he clutches his heart and starts to step away from the mirror, backing straight into another large rock.
2: A reflection. The sunlight playing tricks with my eyes. That's what it is.
0: Hmm... By the way, that was not done as a time-consuming split screen or an expensive optical job. Director Nathan Juran used a relatively simple but effective way of doing that trick shot in camera. You can tell it's not a split screen because those shots require the camera to be locked down with no motion at all. In this case, the camera actually tracks along with Debbie slightly as she walks in through the front of the mirror. Juren didn't give his secret away in Cushman's book, but it drove me crazy. How is it done? How was that done? And after looking carefully and doing a little online research, I think I figured it out. It's hard to explain with words, so I'll post a link to a YouTube video that describes a similar magician's illusion. But... The secret involves the motion picture camera, the magic mirror frame without a glass, a large frameless trick mirror positioned right next to the camera side of the magic mirror's frame, and a duplicate mirror image set that matches the area behind the magic mirror. With careful alignment of these pieces at just the right angles, the camera picks up a slightly offset view of the magic mirror frame that the actor or chimp can walk through to the back side. That backside is masked by the reflected image of the duplicate reverse sand and rocks, but it's angled so it does not reflect the camera filming the whole thing. And voila! Like the best magicians, it's all done with mirrors. If you take a careful look at the sand next to the magic mirror's camera side frame in one of these shots, you'll notice ever so slightly a noticeable squiggly line where the trick mirror is sunk into the sand. Wow, you guessed right. Magicians have been using that same illusion
2: for hundreds of years. In fact, you can still see it in circus sideshows today.
0: Well, before we break for station identification, and before Dr. Smith can recover from what he's just witnessed, Debbie steps back out of the mirror. This is too much for Smith. He collapses back on that rock and goes unconscious, leaving us to wonder what other fantastic things are in store. And what about that odd-looking silent boy in the magic mirror? Is he friend or foe? We'll just have to wait until we return to get the answers to those questions, I guess, Kurt. The suspense is killing me.
1: Boston Space will
0: continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2, we're back outside the Jupiter 2. Maureen's still cleaning up the mess from the storm. Judy's sitting at the camp table adjusting her hair. And Don emerges from the ship carrying a vanity mirror, which he sets down in front of the future Mrs. West. He asks her, what's wrong with Penny? And Judy answers with a question of her own. She's not crying, is she? No, but she seems lost to the world. Marine wants to know why Penny should be crying. Judy fesses up that it's her fault and cryptically refers to the earlier exchange she had with Penny and her tomboy ways. Maureen understands immediately, but Don doesn't, and asks what the ladies are talking about. He gets a, you wouldn't understand. She tells Judy not to worry. She'll go inside and check on Penny. Before she can, Penny comes skipping out of the ship with the bloop in tow, and apparently in a very jolly mood. She stops to show everyone a little silver bell on a chain that she has, and then races out of camp. The three adults are flummoxed, but accept that whatever was troubling Penny before, apparently she's gotten over it. Next, we cut back to the magic mirror sight. Smith has regained consciousness, but is back to taking his pulse and checking his vitals. He's got a very worried expression on his face, and from the count, his heart must still be racing. Just then, Penny arrives with Debbie in her arms and her little ringing silver bell. That gives him another startle. Penny apologizes and asks if she's frightened him, while sweet little Debbie takes the chance to reach out and comfort Dr. Smith with a furry paw on his padded shoulder.
2: No, my child, that has already been done.
0: Noticing the bloop touching him, he roughly brushes her paw away.
2: And hand me, madam. Really? (laughs) Could you find a more suitable playmate than this blithering bloop?
0: (laughs) Poor little Debbie. She gets no love from Dr. Smith. Penny says, of course not. There are several of these moments when Dr. Smith treats Debbie in less than a sensitive fashion, and we know that Jonathan wasn't fond of working with animals. But there was a script review note that Cushman mentions where Irwin Allen emphasized that under no circumstances should Smith be shown to kick or physically abuse the chimp. Whatever Debbie's trainer might have eventually done to her choppers, at least it sounds like Irwin was a follower of the be kind to animals credo.
2: Yeah, well, maybe yes and maybe no. Directors tend to be keen observers of people, and I think Irwin rightly observed that audiences view people who abuse animals as cruel bullies and instantly sympathize with the animal and despise the abuser. So Smith's lovable rogue image would have been forever destroyed if he actually killed one of the kids or (laughs) secretly tortured an animal, especially cute little Debbie. He gets away with abusing the robot because it's a machine and it's actually bigger and stronger than smith as the series progresses and as the robot shows more emotions you'll notice that the robot also starts getting the last laugh on smith
0: Mm-hmm. yes he does he
2: does and i think that's an attempt to kind of equalize the two
0: for this same reason yeah all fair points i agree well, with a tone and expression of pathos, Smith tells Penny...
2: Well, if you've come out here to spy on the chain gang, you might as well and tell your father that his precious storm arresters have likely caused the first serious casualty on this benighted planet,
0: Dr. Zachary Smith. Mm. She's confused, but he tells her never mind. She probably wouldn't appreciate the tragedy of it. Dr. Smith taken out by... Sunstroke or worse. Cosmic psychosis. What difference does
2: it make what I've got? Oh, for such a thing to strike now, to strike the finest mind in the universe, to strike me at my very richest moment. Oh, go away, child, and leave me in peace and take that improbable bell ringer with you.
0: Penny gathers up Debbie and the little bell, and then leaves Smith alone in his misery. The bloop leads her back to the magic mirror, but Penny doesn't want to play her face game now. She wants Debbie to take her to where she found the little bell, but of course that's exactly what Debbie's doing repeatedly. And by the way, did you notice that large frog statue sitting there next to the mirror? That was kind of strange.
2: Oh yeah, yeah I did. It was weird. Whatever saucer dumped that mirror must have unloaded its (laughs) uglier garden statues at the same time. There's probably a, a gnome behind it.
0: <laughs> yeah, one of those little jockeys holding up a lantern or something. Like yeah. <laughs> Standing with her back next to the glass, Penny's still arguing with the stubborn bloop, and Dr. Smith happens to glance up at the commotion a few yards away. That's when Debbie walks up closer to Penny and gives her a good two pod shove right into the magic mirror. We see Penny seem to fall through the looking glass. Smith gasps out loud. <gasps> He must be going mad. Two impossible mirages in one morning. But what happened to Penny? We cut to a strange, dark world of shadows and glittering reflections, where we see Penny stumbling down a set of steps into... Where? There are some more obscure objects scattered around this Limbo set, but what really struck me as artistically interesting is that it's a dark world, but at the same time, there's some very soft, focused light flares and reflections from a pool of water at the base of those steps, and they're all kind of framed randomly around the edge of the shots. It was very cool, and it certainly created a wonderful, otherworldly atmosphere, especially, again, combined with that magical John Williams music
2: oh i love that
0: lighting effect
2: it's created by shining a bright light onto an agitated pan of water with a reflected bottom Mm. which bounces the light back up onto the walls where you see all that rippling waves of light it's very cool and they also smeared vaseline along the edges of the camera lenses so everything near the edge is kind of blurry and dreamlike it is
0: it's that's a great word dreamlike exactly Penny picks herself up, still holding on to that little silver bell. She's confused and trying to get her bearings as she calls out for Debbie. And she's asking, where am I? I guess she's figured she's not in Kansas anymore. She pauses by the pool and continues to call for Debbie. Then we hear the sound of an unseen creature growling in the distance. uh... Yeah, we
2: should mention that all the audio in this strange place also has a slight echo like it's in a cave, so that monster sounds pretty close and very nightmarish.
0: It does. Penny happens to look down at the water next to her feet. The camera then focuses on a large eye reflected in that rippling water. It must be cl- close by. But Penny didn't seem to see the eye because she doesn't react at all. She just continues to call out for her pet. She appears uneasy but not overly frightened. And this was in keeping with another demand by the network sensors that under no circumstances should the girl be depicted as overly terrified or even later in the story, hopeless, about ever getting back to her world. You know, at first I wondered what that eye
2: reflection was doing in the water when the monster itself is nowhere to be seen. But later on, we'll learn that you can spy anywhere in the universe wherever there is a mirror to look through. So maybe that's what that eye was doing, It's using the water's reflection as a mirror portal to spy on Penny, which is pretty sinister,
0: I think. Oh, it's very sinister. And it's a good point, I hadn't even thought of that. Penny takes another glance at the water. Something drops into it, causing the surface to break up, and that reflection of the giant eyeball disappears. Now Penny can hear the growls and asks, who's there? Then we hear another echoing sound that's different from the growls we heard before. This one sounds more like someone laughing or yelping with joy. That was weird. Mm -hmm. A little unnerved, Penny turns around and runs back up the stairs, calling for Dr. Smith. We cut back outside of the magic mirror. Dr. Smith is making a survey. Still in denial about what he's just witnessed, he walks around to the backside of his treasure. There's nothing unusual behind it, just more sand and rocks. But he saw it with his own eyes. He just can't believe it. It's impossible. And again, it is possible.
2: If you're insane and hallucinating. (laughs) Oh dear, oh dear me.
0: (sighs) Back inside the mirror world, Penny bangs on the glass. She can see Dr. Smith on the other side but he can't see or hear her. And I really could feel her frustration, but at this point I was starting to wonder, is this all just a dream, Kurt? And I say that because we already mentioned, as you said, the dream-like photography style that was being used here. And it did remind me of some similar dreams or nightmares I've had before, you know, like where you're trapped or lost and no matter how hard you try, no one can hear you. That's a very, very, very scary dream to have.
2: Yeah, well, what you're describing to me just sounds like my childhood. But as I got older, I realized it wasn't a dream. it was just the reality of being in a family of eight kids and being drowned
0: out constantly by seven louder siblings. Oh, the pain. <laughs> oh,
2: the pain. The pain.
0: Adding to her frustration is the fact that she's not only seeing Smiths check his face for signs of illness, but she can hear him as well. He's pitifully reciting a series of worrying symptoms. Hallucinations,
2: palpitations, and coated tongue.
0: Yes, yes, that's what it
2: is. I've even sicker than I thought. I have cosmic fever. Oh, dear.
0: Inside the mirror world, Penny continues to bang helplessly against the glass as she watches the miserable Dr. Smith turn away from her and head out of the area. She begs the doctor not to go, but he still can't hear her. Dejectedly, she slowly turns away from the mirror and cautiously walks back down the steps to the edge of the pool. With the sounds of more growls echoing through the area, she's clearly wary of what may be lurking in the shadows. That's when we hear the first human words spoken by an unseen voice. It tells her to jump. Go ahead and jump. She thinks about it for a second, then hops over the water to the other side. Then the echoing voice says, Now it's all right. Hmm. She wants to know who's speaking to her, and the voice answers cryptically, Me! More frustration for poor Penny. She takes a few tentative steps in the direction of the sounds and asks where the voice is. Here! Uh, More riddles. Taking a couple of more steps, the boy comes from behind a statue right next to Penny. She turns around to see a very human-looking boy dressed in ordinary clothing. Maybe he is human because he tells her in perfect American English that the silver chain and bell she's holding is his. And he takes the bell from her hand and places it around his neck. Up until now, Kurt, Lost in Space has been consistent and pretty uniquely good about not showing aliens that speak human languages without at least an explanation. So let me ask you, at this point, who did you think this boy was? An alien, a lost earthling, or a figment of Penny's imagination?
2: He's an alien, as he'll indicate later. But he'll also infer how he learned English, although he won't hit us over the head with an explanation. It's kind of subtle, but it makes perfect sense. So hold that thought for a few minutes, and good things will come to those who wait.
0: Okay, okay, I'll wait. Good, good. I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, Penny doesn't seem to be as uneasy as she was before. She says to her mystery date, why, you're just a boy. But my question is, is he a prince or a dud?
2: (laughs) You're
1: just a boy.
0: What's the matter with that?
1: Who are you?
2: Who do you want me to be?
1: Don't you have a name?
2: (laughs) Uh, What name would you like?
1: Would you please stop answering every question with a question and tell me how to get out of this cave?
2: Cave? What what cave?
1: This has to be a cave with an entrance of some sort down by that funny old mirror.
2: This isn't a cave. This is the whole world. That's what it is.
1: Well, then I'll just have to find my own way
2: out. There's no way out, Penny. No way at all.
1: How'd you know my name?
2: Oh, I know everybody's name. Especially those I choose to look through the other side of the mirror.
1: You've watched me?
2: Of course. Love, 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 What's the matter? Don't you want to see any more faces?
1: I think I'd prefer to see the Jupiter, too,
2: thank you. Oh, <clears throat> all right. Uh, come on, I'll show you. Okay, now, I'm getting kind of creeped out at this point, even more than Penny is. I mean, she's, what, 12, maybe 13 years old, and she's trapped in this cellar-like room surrounded with nightmarish props and echoes everywhere, including the sound of a not-so-distant monster. But to top it all off, this 26-year-old man who she calls boy, but clearly he's way past puberty. And he's, he's been spying on her through her bathroom and bedroom mirror for who knows how long, and now he's flirting with her? Where, where, where's Daddy Shotgun? I, I don't like the direction this nightmare is heading.
0: Yeah, it's going in a weird direction for sure, yeah. Well, the boy agrees to show her the Jupiter II and then leads her by the hand to a different part of his world. Along the way, they pass more eccentric objects, strange statues, and a menagerie of other esoteric props. Eventually, they arrive at the designated spot. It's stacked with more random art objects and the boy points up saying, there it is. But Penny's disappointed. There's no Jupiter II, just a hole. The boy says he only told her that she could see it. So she climbs up the stack, reaching a smaller frame where we see an image of Judy and Maureen busy. Mom's fixing lunch while Judy is still primping for her mystery date, I guess. <laughs> then we cut to the same scene but we're on the other side of that vanity mirror that Don had retrieved for Judy earlier. Penny starts to shout at them, trying desperately to get her mom's attention, but just as before, they have no idea that she's calling to them from the other side of the class. As the act is drawing to a close, Penny continues to shout and bang on the glass without effect. Undisturbed at her distress, the boy asks what she wants to see next, but she's fixated on watching Don and Judy involved in a flirtatious conversation that seems as normal as can be, and that's contrasted by the totally abnormal situation that she's in. The boy tells Penny that she's going to be in his world forever. That feeling of helplessness builds when she sees her mother step up to the mirror. But no matter how hard she pounds or shouts, no one can hear her. The boy asks, why is she doing that? They can't hear her. After all, it's just another mirror. What a
2: dork. I'm totally done with this boy. I'll loan you my shotgun, but you'll have to supply your own shells because I'm using
0: all mine up on him first. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, get in line. With her back to the boy, Penny continues to call to her mother. Then the boy tells Penny, don't you understand... Haven't you ever wondered what's on the other side of a mirror? Well, this is here. As we go to break, Penny's frustration leads to gloom as Maureen, Don, and Judy all turn away from the mirror. She then turns away, rests her chin on her folded hands, looking off in the distance for a way out of this nightmare, quietly repeating, Mom between heartbreaking little gasps of despair.
2: Boy, the kids who were watching this back in the 60s must have really been blown away by, it, you know, oh, so that's what's behind mirrors. It must have
0: been mm-hmm. pretty cool. Indeed. Lost
1: in Space, brought to you by... He's here! My mystery date! Mystery date, are you ready Date, the thrilling new Milton Bradley game of romance and mystery that's just for you. And you and you and you. Mystery date. Will you be ready for swimming? Or a dance? When you open the door, will your mystery date be a dream? Or a dud? Oh. Fun and surprises. That's mystery date. Remember, Milton Bradley makes the best games in the world. So, girls... Open the door for your mystery date. Get Mystery Date.
0: When we return from the commercial to start Act 3, a dejected Penny is seated next to the strange boy. He's absent-mindedly fiddling with the bell in his necklace and still seems to be confused by her attitude. He asks if she knows any riddles. Of course, but she's in no mood for games. She's got to get out of there. If there's a way in, there must be a way out. But then Penny hears the sound of her family again from the mirror. Once more, she tries to get their attention, but it works no better this time. The boy says she shouldn't be upset. After all, that's not the real world on the other side of the mirror. This is the real world. And what's more, they can have all the fun they want to in here forever. He suggests they go check out some more mirrors. If they look around long enough, they can find any mirror anywhere. Even back on Earth? He says, sure, but... He's not interested in that. Now the boy acts frustrated and he can't understand Penny's mopey reactions. He says of all the humans he's watched, he thought she'd be different. Okay. The way he said that, I'm assuming that we're supposed to infer that he's not human now, Kurt. Is that how you were reading it? Absolutely. This scene gave us a
2: lot of imaginative details about this mirror realm, which really started to make my imagination ignite. Like how this guy can apparently see anywhere in the galaxy through mirrors, including Earth. Now that's the part that can explain how he speaks English, because no one ages in this dimension, and when you're bored and watching other worlds, you can hear everything they say. So after a few centuries of this, you'd probably learn a bunch of different languages. Now, I was kind of hoping they would show us some of what was going back on Earth, you know, maybe even back at Hatsfield Little Four Points in Vermont, but who am I kidding? This guy isn't going to be watching Aunt Claire and Davy Sims having supper. No, he's probably watching Earth back in 1997 and seeing what Bill is doing to Monica. So <laughs> maybe maybe we're lucky that we got spared any of the peaks back on Earth because I, I just love the fact that they alluded to so many of these weird possibilities. It was was pretty cool. Yeah,
0: it was cool. That's a great answer to the question, how did he learn English?
2: Now, of course, it's also kind of funny to think that that wasn't intended and we're just reading into it, but what
0: the hey, let's go with it. Yes, let's go with it. He went to all the trouble of cleaning up his house before she arrived, but she's just acting like a sad little girl. He turns away from her and starts to walk away. Penny chases after him, asking, how can he have a house in here? Wow, he says, that's a dumb question. <laughs> Just then we hear some more strange growling creature noises. Penny gets a frightened expression on her face, and then we cut to a creeping, weird life form that's slithering out from behind another statue, apparently in their direction. That was cool, I thought, but how would you describe that thing, Kurt? It was interesting.
2: Oh, wow. I'd say it's like a large, dog-sized, hairy caterpillar crawling or sliding its way through some weird-ass prop. But when I say hairy, I don't mean like flat hair. I mean protruding hair like those poisonous caterpillars have. It was very convincing, and the way they showed you just enough to fascinate you but not enough to reveal anything distinct was very manipulative and effective.
0: It really was. Penny breathlessly asks the boy, what is it? But with a sly grin on his face, he doesn't answer. Instead, he pulls out a slingshot and takes aim at the weird creature. His shot was enough to get that thing to turn tail, if that was its tail, and slither off in the other direction. As strange as that thing was, I'm feeling like nothing in this mirror world is really that dangerous because the boy seems totally unfazed by all this. He calls the creature a scaredy cat and tells Penny... She's no fun. He then turns away from her, leaving Penny chasing after him again. This whole thing is beginning to feel a lot like Peter Pan. And you don't know
2: whether the danger is real or just that the kids are clueless that There is a danger, because if you remember in Peter Pan, there were all sorts of real dangers, but none of the kids seemed to care at all about it, like the crocodile and all the sword fighting and everything. They enjoyed it, but when the pirate got eaten by the crocodile, it seemed pretty real, so uh, it's strange in that way.
0: It is. (laughs) It is. Next, we're back inside the upper deck of the Jupiter II, and we get another comedic scene with the reclined Dr. Smith being nursed by Maureen out of his state of physical and mental exhaustion, complete with smelling salts, thermometer, and more checks of his heartbeat. Maureen is dutifully checking the results to see if he has any fever. A wry smirk comes over her face, then she steps back over to the nerve-wracked Smith, but before she can deliver the bad news...
1: Oh, tell me, dear lady. Don't be afraid to tell me. Well... (laughs) can't see that i'd rather know the worst without any false kindness if you please i'm quite prepared to face my agony oh what i was going to say is that i can't see that you have any fever at all what let me have that i obviously didn't keep it in long enough
2: or he didn't rub it against his pants long enough (laughs) (laughs) that old trick yeah
1: dr smith you say that with cosmic fever you have hallucinations now have you had any of those
0: Oh, madam,
2: if I were tell you.
0: Oh, dear, yes. But he frustratingly doesn't want
2: to elaborate. But Smith's facial expressions during this scene are really priceless. In general, I prefer the sinister Smith to the incompetent clown Smith. But I have to admit, he could be very, very funny at times. And this is a classic example.
0: Yeah, it's pretty gold.
2: <laughs> Surely have more than that.
1: Well, go on and tell me. I'm not afraid of bad dreams. Mrs. Robinson... What I saw. Yes, Doctor. Tell us.
2: Just what did you
1: see? Oh, no, no. I wouldn't want to burden the rest of you with my problems. There is definitely something wrong with this thermometer. Ah. You. You. You're real, aren't you? You're just an absurd little animal, aren't you? Well, of course he's real. Like something I saw. All those storm arresters just waiting to be installed. Oh, yes, and uh, they would have been installed, I assure you, if I hadn't been suddenly seized with, with a strange malady, uh, brought on by overexertion and strained to the lumbar region. Of course, of course. Well, anyway, Dr. Smith, it's nearly time for lunch now. Just as soon as Penny gets back. Penny? Yeah, she's out playing. Why? Playing? You did say playing? That's it? She's just been out playing games.
0: Smith's oddball reactions cause John and Maureen to shoot some perplexed reactions to each other, but Smith looks relieved and declares to the confused pair that,
1: I don't really have a fever, do I? I'm not really sick, am I? I'm as sane as I ever was. And you? you? You, you're quite normal too, aren't you, you hirsute horror?
0: Hirsute, I had to look this up. That's a fancy word for shaggy. Mm. <laughs> Zoics. <That's> shaggy. <laughs> He even gives her a little love tap on the paw. Poor Debbie. (laughs) Smith sure seems to miss having the robot around to insult. He's probably a little jealous that the
2: robot is getting to be the star of his very own episode in War of the Robots (laughs) over at the other soundstage. It's strange that we don't notice that the robot or Will is absent in this episode, but I think that's because so much of the action takes place away from the Jupiter 2 and instead occurs in the mirror world uh, with only Penny and the so-called boy.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point, because you don't really at this point feel like they're missed that much. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Professor Robinson, I have a little
0: job to attend to before we eat. Yes.
1: And those storm arresters, I will attend to them too, fear not. But first I must go and do this little job, and I'll bring Penny back with me. Oh, yes. I'll get Penny. Yes.
0: Oh yes, he'll get Penny And he said that with a weird expression on his face That that kind of would have worried me if I were the parent Mm -hmm. (laughs) It had that, I'll get you my pretty vibe to it Yeah, exactly Back in the magic mirror world, Penny's caught up with the boy She asks him how all the strange collection of objects got into his world He says that whenever something gets lost or becomes unwanted It winds up there Hmm. I wonder if that means he's unwanted. I didn't... Think of that before. (laughs) Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Fidgeting with his slingshot, he also tells her that it isn't really a world, it's a dimension. I wish he'd be a little more specific because we know it's not the fifth. Is this the sixth or the seventh dimension cut?
2: (laughs) Yeah, but I'm glad he made that point. It kind of made the mirror world sound a little more science fiction esque and a little less fantasy, you know. Somehow adding atomic space or dimension (laughs) to anything in Lost in Space
0: always made it sound more realistic and futuristic you know
2: <laughs>
0: indeed <laughs> well whichever one it is the boy adds that a dimension is much better than a world and anybody can tell you that Penny's trying to keep up but it's also strange passing through some gauze like curtains he takes her on a little tour of his home which is another area filled with a collection of chairs tables cushions and other objects that he's put together for himself Yeah, there's so many cushions there, it's literally his pad. Taking in the disorganized scene, Penny says she thought he'd cleaned it up. Well, he did, all except for the dirt. Then, reclining on some cushions, the boy describes his Peter Pan lifestyle in this weird Neverland. Here, you don't have to wash your face, clean up, or do anything else you don't want to. All you have to do is have fun. Penny says it sounds fun, but she does seem a little unsure. And the boy then perks up and says, Oh, it is. And she's going to enjoy it forever. Here you can do whatever you want. None of that goop between people. Oh, yes, yeah, she hates goop. Like how Don and Judy act. Well, she just hates
2: it. Yeah, well, in the words of Shakespeare, methinks thou does protest too much. Mm.
0: Danger, Penny Robinson, danger! In the background, clocks are chiming, but then a louder bell starts to ring. It's the boy's alarm system. But he says not to worry about the slithering creature they saw before. Those things can't hurt her. They're just fun to play with. Well, that alarm jars Penny back on her priority of getting out of here. Somehow, Debbie passed in and back out of this dimension. And somehow, he managed to bring all these objects in this world. So why can't they go back out? But the boy says he didn't bring all that stuff in here. He had a cat that did it. But one day, she ran off with a tomcat on the outside. So basically, the cat grew up, Yep. Yeah. With his alarm still ringing, he distractedly rifles through a pile of little treasures, looking for something. He tells Penny that animals can pass back through the mirrors, but this place is like a roach motel for people. They can go in, but they never come out. Sounds fishy to me, Kurt.
2: Yeah. So it's kind of like the painted tunnel on the Roadrunner cartoon. If you're a stupid animal like a bird, you could run through that tunnel unharmed because you're too dumb to know that it's impossible. But if you're a wily coyote and you can read maps and mail order products through the Acne Catalog Company, watch out. You're just too smart and you're going to hurt yourself if you try to follow that
0: ignorant animal inside. That's funny. While she's trying to digest this bit of unsettling news, he mentions that he's looking for his cannon. Cannon? He explains it's a shiny gold tube that shoots cosmic particles, but he thinks it'll stop him if it gets through. Him? With all those clocks ticking and chiming, I was starting to wonder if we were going to see tick-tock that crocodile you mentioned from Peter Pan next, Kurt. (laughs) Uh, Interesting that
2: we brought up those cosmic particles again. This whole thing started when the mirror was struck by lightning
0: induced by a cosmic storm. Coincidence? I think not. I think not. But no. Matter-of-factly, he tells her when all the clocks start going off, it means that the hairy thing that lives down below is getting near. Penny now says she thinks this is a terrible place. The boy's getting annoyed, telling her to cut it out. She wanted to have fun, didn't she? They'll wait until it gets near, and then they'll give it a good chase. I'm getting the impression that this quirky boy is just not capable of expressing normal emotions. He's describing things that should normally make someone anxious, if not frightened, but he's acting like this is all just an ordinary daily occurrence. does kind of make you wonder just how long he's been in this dimension. And how did he wind up there? Yeah, I wondered that too. How did he get there? Does he
2: eat anything? If you don't age, maybe time doesn't pass to make you hungry or thirsty. If he had always been there, it was believable that he would become acclimated to the horrors within that dimension, no matter how dangerous they are. Kids do that. You know, if you're raised in an ongoing war, they often get used to death and violence and start to view it all as a game. Those stories of child soldiers are chilling because they're not aware what's right or wrong or even what's dangerous. Daily violence is just entertainment to them. And it seems to be with this guy, too. Although it did make me wonder, maybe it is sort of a game. Maybe the monster is
0: also... Thinking this all is a game too, you you just don't know. You don't know. It's strange, but all of this is also making me wonder: is this real? Are we watching a dream? It's kind of like Mister Nobody, where for a while we just weren't sure if it was an imaginary friend or if it was a real alien being. At some point, we find out, but uh, still not sure at this point.
2: Well, I have to confess it never even occurred to me that it was a dream because we saw Smith see Penny enter the mirror, which was a validation that Penny was experiencing something that was indeed real and otherworldly. Now, we didn't get to see that with Mr. Nobody. She was always alone when she talked to that voice, and no one else was there to witness it and uh, until the very, very end. That's a good point. That's a good point.
0: But it's still going to get confusing. <laughs> it's oh, still yeah. going to get confusing later too. But anyway. when you see hmm.
2: when you see those cinematic devices, the dream like a device. It's hard not to think, yes, this is a
0: dream. All right. Penny asks him what the thing looks like, but he's never seen it all, just parts. But don't worry, she'll know it when she sees it. Ugh. Then we hear some loud, threatening growls, and the wide-eyed Penny points behind him saying, I see what you mean. We get a cutaway of that large, almond-shaped eye peering at them out of the dark through the gauzy curtains. Still unfazed, in fact wearing an odd grin, the boy jumps up, grabs Penny, and then scoots her around the corner, telling her to hide inside the base of an old grandfather clock. She's frightened and confused, but goes along with it, squeezing inside it to hide. With the act nearing a climax, we cut back outside. Blooping little Debbie is standing alone in front of that magic mirror. We can hear, but not see, Smith calling out for Penny. Catching up with the chimp, he heads over to the mirror. Looking around the rocky clearing, he continues to call for Penny to come out of her hiding place. Getting no answer, he holds Debbie's hands and tries to coax her into taking him to Penny. But she's no help, so he once more brushes her paw away.
2: You dreadful creature.
0: (laughs) Getting impatient and looking around for a quick end to all this nonsense, Smith turns back once more to the magic mirror. He circles around the mirror, trying to figure out how she managed to pull off her Houdini-like disappearing act. Changing tack for a moment, Smith changes to a syrupy tone of voice, addressing the absent penny. He promises to forgive her, but chides her for tricking him, urging her to come out of her hiding place. But he can't keep the sweet act up for long. His impatience gets the better of him, and he warns Penelope that she better come out at once. Still, he gets no response. Just the sound of the blooping Debbie. All that blooping has frayed his nerves. He turns his frustration on his substitute punching bag for the day. Poor little Debbie. He gives her one more love tap on the paw as he tells her to go away. You know, that robot better get back from vacation soon, because if this keeps up, there's no telling what kind of abuse Dr. Smith is going to visit on that poor defenseless chimp. At least the robot can fend off Smith with his electric claws if he needs to. Without her teeth... All she's got left are those furry horns glued to her head. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's
2: true. But I did notice that when she was mugging for the mirror, that she still did have her teeth at that point. So ah. this was back in the the BC era, you know, the biting chimp days. Ah. But rest assured, the after-dentist or AD era is close at hand. Hand
0: with pliers, that is. (laughs) Poor Debbie. (laughs) Irritated and restless, Smith looks all around and returns to issuing stern warnings to the absent Penny.
2: All right, that's done it, young woman. You've got some sort of trick with this mirror, but I'm going
0: to teach you a lesson. He grabs the shovel he'd forgotten about earlier and marches over to the mirror, which we see is beginning to stir.
2: This mirror is mine. Just so you never do such a nasty thing like this again, you watch me now.
0: Did you notice that demonic bull head has started to snort vapors again and its eyes have begun to flash, Kurt? Oh, yes. (laughs) We only saw a quick cut of it, but every time that bull has started this business, something weird has happened, so I'm expecting it here. Almost like the bull decides who gets in or out, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. He raises the shovel to strike the glass, adding,
2: This is not magic. This is
0: reality. But instead of shattered glass... The shovel bounces back in Smith's face, causing him to lose his balance. And he falls headlong right out of reality and into the magic mirror land. Oh, yeah. Well, did you
2: notice the cut as they swapped Harris out with his stunt double? We didn't see Smith's face as he falls through that mirror because it's his double, you know. You got to protect that delicate back of Smith's, don't you know?
0: Ah, no. Good. Touche. I did not notice that was the stunt double. That was a great catch. We'll have to wait until we come back from a word from our sponsor to see if Smith has landed in the same dimension Penny's in, or perhaps he's returned to the fifth dimension.
1: Lost in Space has been brought to you
0: by... Support for this non-profit podcast is made in part by...
2: Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com.
0: When we return from the break to start the final act, the camera is focused on that large eye that we've only seen in reflections or distorted shadowy images up until now. That eye belongs to the growling hairy beast. And what's worse, it's creeping around the side of the grandfather clock that Penny's hiding in. We don't get to see the whole creature yet, but enough of its body and one paw to suggest this monster has a familiar look to it Hmm. but we can hold judgment until we see more kurt
2: i can't bear the suspense
0: (laughs) (laughs) the camera pans left from the creature to a frightened penny and the excited boy who are hiding just a few feet away he whispers for penny to wait there while he gets the beast to chase him but she's afraid to be left alone The thing hasn't spotted them yet. It's still lurking around some of the other assorted objects and furniture in the boys' living area.
2: This is what's making me think maybe this monster is in on the game, you know, because it it actually seems to kind of like, you know, slow down and enjoy the hunt.
0: I'll I'll act busy over here while you let the suspense build. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. He tells Penny that he's had the thing chasing before. It's fun, and she'll get to like it eventually. <laughs> Somehow, I can't imagine that's ever going to be something Penny will describe as fun. But she agrees to stay put inside the clock, with only a glass door to protect her from the beast.
2: Yeah, well, you know, if anything, Penny might end up actually taming it and making it into a pet, you know. But chasing it and tormenting the animal, that, even if
0: it's a monster, that isn't Penny's style. No, that's not her style. With a goofy smile on his face, and I do mean a goofy, goofy smile, the boy slowly makes his way around some of the other objects, moving away from Penny before he tries to draw the creature's attention. That's when we get a few more cutaway looks that reveal more details of the creature. It's the revenge of the bear suit again, Kurt. Yeah, I'm beginning to think Irwin's uncle owned a bear suit
2: costume company or something like that, you know. Or maybe maybe Irwin had a bear suit fetish. You know, what, what's that uh, subculture fandom where people dress up in animal costumes and have orgies while staying in their favorite animal characters? I, I, I think they call them uh, furries or something like that. Maybe this is a shout out to that anthropomorphic lifestyle, which, now that I think about it, kind of took off as a popular genre right around the time that Jupiter 2 blasted off in the mid 1990s.
0: Well, uh,.
2: What did you call that? <laughs> Furbies? What is yeah, it? <laughs> they call them furries, yeah. I mean, this is one of those uh, cultural things that if you don't know about it, that means that's a good thing that you don't know about it, you know?
0: Well, I, I hate to ask, but... Uh, well, no, don't tell me. No, I won't tell you. <laughs> how you me. know Don't tell me how you know about that.
2: The, the answer I couldn't repeat on the podcast anyway.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, there are some different details to this monster. It turns out that big eye as you said, is on a stalk at the top of the shaggy beast's head, which otherwise has no other discernible features. I mean, I didn't see a mouth or even a nose, just fur. I did notice what looked like some little ivory tusks or teeth that looked like they were almost at the monster's neck. I guess those are supposed to be teeth? I really couldn't tell what that was. It just was weird. What was your impression?
2: Well, well I didn't see a neck, just the broad shoulders where the head would be and that the stalk was on top of it. But I thought that the tusks were fangs and that the mouth was moved down to the chest above the tusks. But what made it extra weird was that there were three tusks. So there was one fang right down the middle. I I liked it as a monster, and I also liked the fact that they didn't reveal too much about it, leaving most of it up to our own imaginations. But, you know, it's just very mysterious.
0: It was cool. Now, they call it in the script, The Hairy Beast, but I, I have noticed online on some of these Facebook groups, the fans call it the eyestalk monster, which mm. I think is also kind of cool. The eye Stalker. That sounds like something from
2: Carl uh, Kolschak. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the eye Stalker. I love it, yeah. We'll have to use that from now on. Well, the music is really telegraphing that the situation is suspenseful and dangerous, but you know this large hairy beast could be deadly, but it's really not. At least that's the vibe we're all getting here, I guess. So the visuals seemed a little out of step with the scary music to me, at least a little bit. What, were you scared at this point or just more interested?
2: Well, the more I saw of this monster, the less scary it seemed. You know, I could tell you the first time I saw it, that monster did scare me. And it's possible that The way that they're in this timeless realm, we never see the kid eat. There's no evidence that he eats. Maybe the monster doesn't eat either, so there's really no motivation for the monster to eat anything. It's just
0: chasing, you know? Yeah, I like that theory, yeah. The boy finally gets into position and swings a large chandelier at the monster. But besides good vision, the beast has good reflexes because he manages to avoid getting clobbered. The boy yells for Penny to come out and run, and she does, slipping past the eye stalker who's still pinned down, dodging that swinging chandelier. That's understandable, though, because you
2: know if you only have one eye, your depth vision is going to be very poor. So a chandelier
0: coming at you would be pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And Penny's also terrified. She runs away from the beast and for the hills. She snakes her way through the maze of Egyptian statues, treasures, and candlesticks and curtains, only to bump headlong into Dr. Smith. She's astonished to see him there, but doesn't want to linger because that monster could catch up to them at any moment. But Smith wants to have a little chat. He's not angry with her any longer. He says he understands now. She's starting to panic, but he's blissfully unaware of the approaching threat. She screams they have to run away, but he tells her he he refuses to run away from his nightmares any longer. Smith has her by the wrists, and despite her attempts to free herself, she's forced to remain. That's when the boy shows up, asking how Smith got in here. The doctor tells the boy that he's got it backwards. He let the boy in here. Smith believes he's in a dream state, and the entire fascinating place is his creation. And again, I thought Harris's reactions were priceless here. He's enraptured at the genius of his mind's creative powers, which fits well With a man who'd earlier declared himself to be the greatest mind in the universe. Yeah, he's his own biggest fan. The boy calls Smith Goofy. Well, that's the pot kettle. (laughs) That's the pot calling the kettle black, right? And wants Penny to leave with him, but she doesn't want to abandon Dr. Smith, no matter how goofy he's behaving. This was the point where I was finally convinced, Kurt, that the writer was not selling us this is an all-in-Penny's-head story. I figured a dream within a dream would be going too far, even for Lost in Space. Uh, So that rabbit hole was finally plugged up for me, at least.
2: Well, you know, maybe if Penny waits long enough, the entire family will fall into the mirror world. And even with that monster on the loose, it would be much safer than that rock they're currently stranded on. And more interesting, too, because they could really explore the universe through all those mirror portals. Plus, they would never age, and they would apparently never go hungry again, so they really should be trying to figure out ways to get into that realm rather than ways to get out of it. Sounds like a whole nother
0: series, Kurt.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lost in Mirror Space.
0: Smith continues to wax on about this dimension behind all the mirrors in the universe that he's created. But Penny doesn't yet understand. Dr. Smith thinks he's imagining this. She tells him they're trapped in this bizarre world and that the boy said they can't ever get out. Smith says, Not to worry, she's not really there, and neither is that rude young man. At least he recognizes that the boy is a man. Mm. The boy tells Penny that Smith's in Looney Land. Finally, Smith tells Penny they're perfectly safe because none of this is real. He's dreaming it all, the dimension, the bloop, Penny, and the boy. But then we hear the sounds of that hairy eye stalker getting nearer, and we see a quick shot of him approaching from behind the sheer drapes. The boy tells Smith that the monster's no dream, but Smith doesn't react in horror, he's delighted and I really like the quick clips of the beast through the curtain because the lighting threw larger-than-life shadows up that added a surreal nature to the scene.
2: Yeah, and the only thing scarier than a monster chasing you is a monster chasing you in a nightmare. Especially if
0: that nightmare is real because you could wake up dead. Don't ever die in your dreams. Nope. <laughs> the boy still wants to get the beast to chase them, but Smith isn't going along with any of that. He wants to see this wonderful creature of his imagination... Penny panics. She's begging Smith to run away before it's too late, trying to make him understand that he's not dreaming. As Penny pulls on his arm, Dr. Smith ignores her pleas and the danger, telling Penny to let go so that he can enjoy the full experience of this psychedelic trip he's on. Man, this this has been really frustrating for Penny, if you think about it. Everything's a frustration, one after another. Mm-hmm. Finally, Smith's had enough of his dream penny's interference, and he sternly orders her away. It is, after all, his dream, and he must confront his nightmares head on. By the way, we also get to see that the boy is starting to enjoy all this. He's backing away, grinning from ear to ear, because he knows what's in store for the good doctor.
2: What a guy.
0: Then... The hairy stalker lumbers up behind Smith. Penny sees this and runs for her life with the boy chasing after her. And I was expecting to see Dr. Smith erupt into one of his famous blood-curdling screams. But instead, as he looks over his shoulder, the shaggy beast puts an arm around Smith's chest and he reacts with delight. Smith talks to the beast as if he were talking to himself. Ah, incredible, marvelous. However did I think up such a thing? But as the beast begins to growl and starts to shake Dr. Smith a little, his certainty begins to crack. So does his voice as he tells his creation to, hush, hush, there's no need to overdo it now.
2: Yeah, I hate those nightmares where you can't wake up from no matter how hard you try. They always seem to occur on weekdays from nine to five. It's called work, Kurt. It does
0: a body good. <laughs> oh
2: dear, my back. My delicate back.
0: <laughs> we catch up with Penny, followed by the boy. She's returned to his living room, and she's searching through his treasure pile for that cannon. When she finally pulls it out, we see it's another familiar-looking prop. Did you recognize it, Kurt?
2: Oh yeah, the one with the glass shard rifle butt. When it kicks, it cuts your
0: arm off. Mm-hmm. It's the old sky-is-falling Tauron weapon. Yes. The boy's disappointed. He says she's not supposed to kill the creature, just get it to chase them. It's fun to be chased. No, she says that thing's going to hurt Dr. Smith. And he says, well, so what? Smith will just get in the way of how it's supposed to be anyway. Penny's horrified by his attitude as well as the prospect of staying there having fun forever. Then we cut back to Smith, who's now getting a real bear hug from that monster and finally giving us what we missed before. Screams of terror and cries for someone to please wake him up before he dies in his sleep from heart failure, No, oh dear. Penny breaks away from the boy and runs back to save Dr. Smith. The boy chases after her. Hopefully, she'll get there before the creature's giant eye cries acid tears all over Dr. Smith's terrified face. I'm convinced this big eye was yet another Owen nod to his bosses at CBS with their all-seeing big eye logo.
2: Oh, that's funny because I always thought the CBS logo was kind of a uh, a big nod to what they put on
0: CBS. You know, where you always CBS. <laughs> <laughs> Penny arrives in the nick of time, warning Smith to hold still. She aims the cannon towards the beast, who, by the way, still has Smith in a warm embrace. She must be an expert shot because she pumps the weapon like a shotgun and it emits a blast of cosmic buckshot. Scaring the creature off, but leaving a relieved Smith without a scratch. Yeah, that was quite a William Tell shot, wasn't it? It really was. There's no time to linger as Penny tells Smith to hurry, but recovering his composure, he takes the weapon out of Penny's hands. She pulls Smith away from the area as he calls out for the dreadful beast to show itself so he can get a good shot at it. They pause by the pool near the flight of stairs where Penny first fell into this magic mirror dimension. Suddenly, they spot the big eye peering from behind a statue. Smith fires a blast, but instead of scattering bits of bear hide… We get shattered bits of glass. It must have been a reflection in a mirror. Then, the beast appears around another object. Smith fires again. And we get another nightmare of broken glass. That was strange and frustrating. Yeah, so Smith was actually lucky his face wasn't blown
2: to pieces like the mirrors because those cosmic particles apparently have real, you know, substance
0: to them. Exactly. Exactly. Smith's still convinced this isn't reality, complaining that in the future he must dream up better weapons. Penny says the weapon must do something, but irritated, Smith just says the cannon must be part of her dream. While he continues to grumble to Penny, the camera pans down to show us Smith's reflection in the pool of water near his feet. Just then, Smith accidentally fires the cosmic cannon at the water, which causes the good doctor to right out of the mirror world, leaving nothing but the weapon where he was just standing.
2: Yeah, note to self, never let Smith hold a loaded weapon. You know, he rests his finger on the trigger, like they say in the cartoon biz, what a maroon.
0: Staring at the pool of water, Penny is shocked and confused. Where did he go? Then the boy comes running up.
1: Dr. Smith, where'd you go? Dr. Smith? Where is he?
0: What difference does that make? Who cares about him?
1: just fired the cannon into his reflection and disappeared. come on. There's no more fun around here anyway. No! Dr. Smith! But
0: Penny's had all the fun she wants for one day. She breaks away from him, jumps over the little pool, and runs up the staircase calling out for Dr. Smith. On the other side of the mirror, Dr. Smith has managed to do what the boy said was impossible, return to the outside world. And Penny exclaims, he got out! Still unfazed by this, the boy says, ah, well, that's done. He takes her by the hand and leads her back down the steps, but Penny stops him. She picks up the weapon saying, don't you understand? If Dr. Smith could get out, they can too. All they need to do is repeat what he did, shoot the gun at their reflection, and they'll be released from this bizarre dimension. The boy simply says, no, he doesn't want to leave. But Penny desperately does, and pleads with him to come with him too.
1: (laughs) you understand? Give me the cannon and let me try it. No. You you could come and live with us. Oh, and you'd love my whole family and they'd all love you. I don't believe you. And they wouldn't make you do jobs or studying or washing your face, at I least not go. at first. No. They, you wouldn't even have to grow up if you don't want to, at least a little bit at a time.
2: Yeah, well, Penny's telling the truth there. They never made Smith grow up. And he's in <laughs> his mid-fifties. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I don't believe you.
1: Oh, please, boy. And you can't stay in this awful place forever.
2: I thought you were something different. Or you're just a girl.
1: But that's what I am, isn't it?
2: Goop. That's all you're talking is goop. You even upset the hairy beast. Mm-hmm
0: outside, Smith has adjusted to the surroundings and regained his composure. He stares at the mirror and begins to curse it. All his issues started with that mirror, and he's determined to put an end to his problems by putting an end to it. He grabs the platinum frame, then shakes the mirror, which causes the world on the other side of the mirror to tremble. Hmm, that was interesting. Is there some special connection between the alien mirror and the mirror world? We didn't see that happen with any other mirror. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and I mean, all those times when you shattered a mirror it apparently didn't destroy
0: that other world, so it does seem to be something specific about this mirror. Exactly. Penny's alarmed. Looking up towards the stairs, she shouts out for Smith to stop. Of course he can't see or hear her. Outside... He continues to curse at the alien mirror and starts banging away on that cracked glass with a large stone. And I was worried that if he breaks the glass, little Penelope might be trapped with that strange boy in there forever. Which is exactly what the boy tells her. He says, good, he'll break the glass and she'll have to stay there forever. With time running out, Penny picks up that cosmic cannon and aims it at her reflection in the water. Before she fires, the boy pulls the barrel away from her. She begs him to give it back, but he says no. Then his face changes to one of gentle pleading. He asks her not to leave, to stay there with him. Forever isn't such a long time. And I have to admit, that was the first moment I felt any sympathy at all for the character, because he did really seem sad at that point. He adds, she'll like it, and she'll never have to grow old. Penny says she doesn't want to stay there forever, and now she doesn't want to stay young forever. After spending time with this boy, who's refused to become a man, Penny realizes that even if she could stay a little girl forever, in the end, her life would turn out as empty as his. She begs him again to give her the gun and follow her back through the mirror. He doesn't answer, but with a smile of resignation on his face, he holds up the weapon and then hands it back to her. It made me wonder for a second if he'd seen this scene played out before with other people, and not just with his wayward cat. Yeah, maybe Penny isn't his first visitor does make you wonder penny's face has also changed from frightened to sad resignation does she sense he's not going to follow her she gets ready to shoot at her reflection and she tells him once more to follow her out he says nothing in response instead the camera cuts back between close-ups of penny and the boy looking down at the pool with the shimmering light reflecting on their silent somber faces then he says her name starting to tell her something but she stops repeating just do what i do shoot at your reflection With a final breath of resolve, she pumps the cosmic shotgun, firing it into her image in the water, and disappears with a bang and a pop. And that was a nice shot, because we were looking at her reflection as she fired, and then it vanished. After she's gone, the boy steps to the spot where Penny stood a second before. Still looking down, he says to himself, he can't follow her. He doesn't have any reflection. And sure enough, the camera pans down to his feet at the water's edge, and it's all black. Nothing.
2: Yeah, I thought that was a great twist ending. I didn't see it coming except the moment he said he couldn't follow her, and that's when I knew, I bet he doesn't have a reflection. They panned down, and sure enough, there it wasn't. (laughs) So maybe that's how he got there. He lost his reflection. Or maybe he is the reflection of a boy who escaped into the mirror world while his owner grew old and died long ago. I think this is one of those instances where the questions are more tantalizing than the answers.
0: I agree completely, and I I have to say, I feel the same way. I didn't see that one coming at all. It was really satisfying for a second there, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it kind of made the hair on the back of your neck raise.
0: It did. Outside the mirror, Penny's lying in the sand next to Smith's shovel. She finally made it back to her world. An agitated Dr. Smith runs up asking where she came from, but doesn't wait for an answer. Instead, he picks up the shovel and marches back over to the mirror. Penny knows what he has in mind. She screams for him to wait so the boy can get out, but he harshly tells her to be still. He hammers at the mirror with the shovel, shattering the glass. Penny's practically in hysterics now, but just then, John and Marine arrive at the scene. John calls out, Smith, and Marine wants to know where in the world Penny's been. Hearing his name called, Smith stops swinging and joins the others, but the damage is done. Penny is standing there heartbroken. She says quietly to herself, he wouldn't come out. He could have, but he didn't. The parents are understandably confused, but Smith's demeanor has changed from turbulent to one of serene understanding. As Penny runs over to look through the remaining shards of mirror left in the frame, John demands to know what all this means. It means no luck returning to Earth, at least for seven more years. Thanks, Smith. (laughs) Oh, God. Smith tells them it's all over now. Everything will be fine. After all, a little girl can dream, can't she? Seeing nothing in the glass, Penny backs sadly away from the mirror into the arms of her mother, and Mom gently says, Penny? The image dissolves into the final scene of this touching story. We're inside Penny's cabin. She's sitting on her bunk, wearing a distant expression. The accordion door slides open. Maureen asks how she's feeling, She avoids the question by asking one of her own. What will happen to the boy? Mom doesn't know him well enough to say. Penny insists that it did happen. It wasn't a dream. Maureen says, She believes her, but I was kind of getting that feel this was a repeat of how the parents humored Penny before they realized Mr. Nobody was really a Mr. Somebody. Mm -hmm. Mom tries to get Penny out of her cabin and out of her funk, suggesting she join Will for a game of Space Chess. Penny gets up from her bunk, then pauses, sits down in front of her little mirror. She asks her mother, what do you suppose her hair would look like if she wore it on top like this? Maureen asks, what brought this on? Penny says, well, we do have to grow up sometime, don't we? And Maureen answers with a kiss and a loving yes. Mom and daughter leave to join the family. As they walk out of frame, the camera lingers on her little vanity mirror. And if we try hard, we can hear the tinkle of A Little Silver Bell. So ends this charming tale of a young girl coming to grips with childhoods and under difficult, even fantastic circumstances, Kurt.
2: Wow, that tinkling bell was a great ending. It really was. And it was subtle, too. And when I heard it, I thought, did I just imagine that? Because if that was a bell, that was pure genius. And I rolled back the DVD and I played it to check, and sure enough, there it was. I was, I was really floored. I, I'm still amazed how subtle they were about it. It really showed artistic restraint, because remember, no one had DVDs or even VHS tape back then, so if they missed it, they missed it. And the director had to know that. It was all very well played, you know, beautiful Nathan Juran, bravo. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts overall on The Magic Mirror. Well, there was a lot of cool stuff in this episode. That strange crawling thing in the furniture, the weird hairy beast with the eye on the stalk, all those nightmarish scenes inside the mirror with the edges of the screen blurred out and the echoing sound. I was not a fan of the Onion Nose actor who played the so-called boy, but it made my skin crawl every time that 26-year-old man took Penny by the hand and wanted to run off and play games together in a dark place. But I admit, you know, I'm a father of a young girl, so I get agitated when... Young adult men want to play games with little girls, alone forever and ever. How long before hide-and-seek becomes hide-the-sausage? I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't believe in giving anyone any chances. But from what I can tell, the boy did behave himself and eventually let her leave. In fact, the way he didn't admit he was trapped there until after she left, I thought that was kind of noble on his part. He could have used himself as a hostage and tried to guilt Penny and disdain, but he didn't. So that redeemed him a lot in my eyes. And the realization that he was trapped there alone forever made me feel sorry for him as he looked down into that barren water with no reflection. That also made the bell ringing through the mirror at the end so much more powerful because it told us that he was going to be okay and that he was actually happy for Penny, making it back home and moving forward with her life. So I like this episode. It had great style. It had an intriguing plot. It had a nice mixing of themes from, you know, a Peter Pan and the Through the Looking Glass, plus the original concepts as well. And the way that it put the series back on schedule was very clever as well. And it's very cool to know that. It's not my favorite episode, but it is a must-see episode, and I look forward to seeing it again.
0: Well, I agree with a lot you said there, Kurt. But I have to be honest, if you'd asked me before watching this again what my least favorite episode of season one is, I wouldn't have hesitated. I would have told you The Magic Mirror. And I would have had a hard time telling you much more about why, other than I just never really warmed to actor Michael J. Pollard. I never really cared for him, and I can't really tell you why. Yeah, you're beginning to sound like the
2: robot talking about uh, Robbie. I do not like him. I do not
0: know why. (laughs) Well, knowing that ahead of time, I made a vow that this time I'd try to get past that and concentrate on the story and the performances that are in this episode. What I discovered is that, a lot like Mr. Nobody, this episode really had me feeling for Penny and her plight. Not only is she dealing with the hardships of growing up without any BFF, but she's facing it with the very real prospect of a future without a special life partner. And what sold it all was Angela Cartwright's brilliant performance. I think it was another really sterling acting job equal in every way to reacting in Mr. Nobody. It was a much better episode than I remembered, so it's kind of been bumped out of last place for sure. Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. We open on a night shot outside of the Jupiter 2. Dr. Smith is unwinding cable from a drum. Hmm. He proceeds to attach the cable to an interesting-looking device on a table by Will. John and Don walk up and ask exactly what Dr. Smith is working on. Will explains that it's an alarm system to catch a thief who's been raiding their hydroponic garden. Smith and Will have decided to spend the night outside in their sleeping bags so that if and when the alarm bell rings, they'll be Johnny on the spot. At first, John seems reluctant, but after considering he agrees to their plan, Smith turns on the alarm system and then the two bed down for their night on watch. Later that night, the burglar alarm's whining siren pierces the silent night. A groggy will rouses a soundly sleeping Smith awake. Smith grabs his laser rifle and they race over to the ship, but there's nothing to be seen in that pitch black of night. Then the automatic floodlights activate, revealing a disturbance on top of a large rock formation at the edge of camp. Dr. Smith raises his rifle to take a shot, but at the last second, Will pushes the barrel aside, yelling, Wait, it's not an animal! That's when we see the shocking sight of a young teenage boy holding a spear in a very threatening pose. He jumps down from the towering rock, landing right in front of the pair, spear still aimed in their direction. Smith gasps in horror and then grabs Will once more as his personal human shield. The strange boy lunges closer as if he's ready to strike, but just then, the freeze frame slides across our screen with a warning that this story is to be continued, not in one week, but in two weeks. Same time, same channel. Yes, Kurt, Irwin got lucky with yet another network preemption, and it couldn't have come at a better time. This time it wasn't for National Geographic, though, It was just the Cuban Missile Crisis. Lucky for us. (laughs) Uh, We'll save that for later, okay? so Before we go, though, Kurt, do you think that spear is sharp enough to go all the way through young Will and still pierce old Dr. Smith's black heart?
2: Oh, I wouldn't be too sure. Smith might angle Will in just such a way so that the spear will be caught in Will's eye socket. That way Smith won't (laughs) tear his new dark shirt, you know? Clothes make the man, don't you know? (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh well we'll wait to see you <laughs> folks that wraps up this episode of alpha control join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 22nd episode of lost in space titled the challenge until then take care and we'll talk to you soon good night kurt good night Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.